When you're dealing with B2B, you are dealing with dozens of different portals, dozens of different sets of compliance requirements. The margin is thinner, but you get a lot of volume. And so it's a bit of like golden handcuffs, I think, for a startup company that's going into a B2B relationship. So you really have to make sure that the relationship is beneficial for both parties. Ready to talk logistics? How? Can't be done. Figure out some logistics. Welcome to another episode of Supply Chain Therapy. I am your host, Alex Kent, joined by my wonderful co-host, Michelle McNamara. Michelle, what's going on today? Not much, Alex. Stoked to be here. And I'm so stoked today to be joined by our wonderful guest, Rich Durham, Senior Supply Chain and Operations Manager at Pear Eyewear. Rich has seen it all when it comes to startup supply chains. He built an entire U.S. logistics process from scratch at ILVA, an Argentinian tile org. Then he went on to manage distribution for the sustainable bottle company Swell. And now he is the 15th employee at Pear Eyewear. Rich is leading Pear's transition away from overseas production as they grow their team to over 100 people. Rich, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Of course. All right, we're going to get right into it. So this is supply chain therapy after all. So we're going to start with a nice deep breath. Ready? Inhale and exhale. Namaste. (laughs) Namaste. (laughs) I hope the listeners at home also took that deep breath. So let's kick it off. Alex and I, we love a good story. So, Rich, what do you have for us? Anything where things didn't go quite as planned? Sure. So a couple of years ago, when I was still working for Swell, which makes stainless steel water bottles, we were undergoing a a wall-to-wall yearly physical inventory audit, something that's very routine for a lot of companies, where you basically shut everything down and you count literally every unit in your building and you reconcile the discrepancies, and you have to do it under the supervision of a formal auditor, usually from the big four, if you can. And so the day that we had our our big audit, we had the auditor on board, we had all our paperwork ready, we had just pallet upon pallet in the back of our warehouse of returns from big retailers that had not been processed. We had a lot of just kind of junk that still needed to be processed and received in, and there just wasn't enough time. So I remember us the night before trying to categorize as much as possible and label as much as possible. But in the end, it was kind of inevitable that the auditors would want to count from at least a few locations in that back area. And it didn't look pretty for us. We ended up being off on a lot of different areas. And I even remember our COO himself, who was on the floor, you know, randomly picked up a box thinking that it was going to be fine. And that box happened to have a discrepancy as well. And so we were just hitting the worst of luck at each turn. So it was a rough count. Usually these things last about four hours, and I think it ended up lasting like eight hours. Oh, man. Did you figure out what the issue was and and course correct that for the next year? Or was it kind of a a number of different aspects? You're like, oh, uh uh-oh. Yeah, I mean, it's really a systemic thing. So you have to change the entire system of how you're controlling inventory throughout the year. So it's not something you can fix overnight. But the year to year difference was just remarkable because of what we were able to implement with our cycle counting and how we tracked our adjustments. And then we did finally get all of those returns received in and cleaned up. And so by the next year, we were 
spot on, 100%, and it was just a night and day kind of contrast. Aside from a finance and accounting perspective, why is a physical inventory so important? Why is it so important to have the right mm -hmm. amount of inventory as you're running a fulfillment operation? Yeah, it's extremely important because it basically touches every single department. You you might think it doesn't, but it's it's one of those kind of areas of a business that touches so many departments at once because you're dealing with a potential customer experience, you're dealing with stock outages, planning, forecasting, the amount of space that you physically need, logistics, it's all kind of tied to these kinds of departments. And so if you're out of stock of something because your system said that there were two units left and there's actually zero, that's going to be a really poor customer experience. And so you extrapolate that times hundreds of instances or maybe even thousands of instances in a given month. It really can have an impact on your business. And was there any silver lining from the experience? I mean, did the team band together? Anything like that that you think, okay, yeah, this was awful, but at least this happened? Yeah. I mean, in a lot of these inventory audit situations, you're really at like the whim of the auditor. And so sometimes you get lucky, sometimes you don't. I mean, if we hadn't gone through that kind of worst of worst case scenarios, I don't know that we would have had the same kick in the rear for the following year to tighten up our inventory control practices. It's something that a lot of companies can just kind of let slip by sometimes, or maybe they just tend to do it. But Unless you've had an experience like that, you're unlikely to make really, really tight practices to, to implement at your warehouse. I'm curious, Rich, also how you think of this in the broader market, right? We've been talking mm -hmm. about a bullwhip effect here in, in the United States on inventory for an awful long time, it seems like, maybe the past <laughs> three or six months. And I'm curious, you know, how you think of inventory control from a buying too much, having too much in stock, not having enough in stock, and, and the bullwhip mm -hmm. effect that we've kind of experienced over the past three, six months. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, in the in the greater scheme of things, not only is it kind of addressing this customer experience side of the business, but if you want to scale up your business, you have to be able to prove to an outside entity that you're able to manage the inbound and outbound flow of inventory into your building. And so the confidence level that the auditor or the outside entity can give is really based on what you're doing day to day and also what results from the yearly wall to wall count. And so once you have several years of that in place where auditors have signed off and they feel confident that you have strong control over the transactions of inventory that are happening under your roof, then they'll be able to sign off and give more confidence towards a larger scale, whether it's an IPO or, or doing something else that requires your business to claim the confidence of other outside entities. Awesome. Alrighty, let's move on to manufacturing and procurement. So mm -hmm. Rich, you have a wide range of experience here, which I'm super excited to get into. So you have both experience with international manufacturing and bringing that product to the U.S. locally and also mm -hmm. manufacturing locally here in the U.S. So why don't we start big? Mm -hmm. international and we'll get smaller. So can you tell us a little bit about the requirements of the manufacturing piece for Swell and also mm -hmm. just maybe the pros and cons? Sure. So with Swell, the technology is a vacuum seal, stainless steel technology. And that vacuum seal piece of it is only available in Asia. So it makes a decision for you on your behalf mm -hmm. of how you're going to build your supply chain out. 
The good thing is that with these bottles, they're lightweight, but they do take up a lot of space. And so the way that we've had to optimize our supply chain around that is by working with really strong partners that can hit their deadlines, that can flex up or down when we need to as demand yes. changes. And then on the logistics side, we try to optimize our containers as much as humanly possible, at least you know 90% at capacity so that we can really get the most bang for our buck with every inbound container that's coming to the US. Otherwise, we're, we're just not as optimal as we can be, given the fact that we we do have this constraint where the origin has to be. Yeah. And so let's get into some of the pros and cons. So maybe it's for swell, maybe it's more broadly. What mm -hmm. are some of the benefits and limitations of manufacturing overseas? Yeah. So the benefit is you can start off with pretty low volume. If you're mm -hmm. just starting out, it's much more doable to find a, a supplier that you can work with or a third-party manufacturer, and they'll usually pick up the volume that you need. The initial capital is pretty low because you're, you're outsourcing, and so you can get started with very little. The other thing is that you know, a lot of the risk kind of lies on the supplier at the moment. The downside is that you don't have as much control over the end product. <laughs> and as anybody who, you know, imports something knows, it's just, it's sometimes it can be a crapshoot. So you don't have as much quality control. And then you have something like COVID or another major barrier to inbound shipping where you have what used to take maybe six weeks now takes 12 weeks. And you have a lot of unpredictability around when you can expect your product in, how you can plan around it. And a lot of that can be frustrating if you're kind of at the whim of the supplier that's so far away and you know you can't replenish your product as fast. Talk about how important it is to have great partnerships with those international providers and you know trusting them to, to make the product obviously has downstream ripple effects on sales, mm -hmm. marketing, your fulfillment provider, your own in-house team, finance yeah. and, and your forecast, right? I mean, how important is it to, to just maintain strong relationships and, and keep an open dialogue with those providers? Yeah, interestingly, there are a lot of similarities between the relationship you have with a supplier and the relationship you have with your warehouse or your fulfillment center. It really is kind of like a marriage and the two of you rely on each other. You're constantly depending on each other and it's not so easy to just pull out on a whim. You kind of have to work with your manufacturer if they need something, if they need extra resources or if they need extra information, you have to be able to play ball to set them up for success rather than just treating it as like some sort of, you know, downward, more condescending relationship. Rich, I can tell that you are a listener to this podcast because we talk all the time about your warehousing relationship being a marriage and how important it <laughs> yes. is to have two-way communication and not just throw a forecast on someone and say, hey, here's my weekly forecast. You've got, you know, 48 hours or 24 hours in order to staff up. Oh, by the way, my forecast is 10x. Mm -hmm. What we did last week, not going to set that warehouse provider up for success. And similarly, right, right you have to plan it well in a, ahead of time for capacity inside a manufacturing facility. And I can just totally. tell, and Michelle even laughed here because <laughs> you mentioned the marriage word and, and it's something we talk about a oh, lot yeah. here. So thanks for being a listener. <laughs> <laughs> Very loyal. Love it. Awesome. One more question about international manufacturing before we move on. I'm sure there are plenty of other listeners out there that are in similar situations. Maybe it's product requirements. Maybe oh. it's cost. There's just some reason that they're doing it internationally. And so I'm curious if you have any learnings or advice, anything that you'd share for someone of tips for, mm -hmm. for that process. 
my only piece of advice would be, you know, if you're looking long term for your business, try to assess what the risk is of continuing with that kind of supplier model. If things are working well and you're getting great pricing and you have a very established logistics channel to move that product into the U.S. or to your customers, then, you know, things can work pretty well. But if you're starting to see cracks in the network or cracks in the entire kind of overall picture or landscape of how product is being manufactured and coming into you, then it's important to start looking at either diversifying your supplier portfolio or trying to vertically integrate a bit more. Excellent. All right. I think this next topic I'm most excited for, in part because it's near and dear to your heart. And I think a lot of folks in the U.S. are excited by the idea of nearshoring, bringing more of that manufacturing piece locally. And Mm -hmm. so tell us about Pair Eyewear's manufacturing process and what you guys are doing. Sure. So, I mean, for starters, at Pair, we are a customizable eyewear brand. We have thousands and thousands of designs that you can swap in and out of your glasses. These are Pair Eyewear glasses. We have, you know, several different shapes and sizes depending on the style that you're looking for. We have adults, kids, etc. And so we allow people to just kind of swap yes. things in and out. We call this the magic trick. They magnetically <laughs> attach. And it's just a really great product. It's fun. It allows people to express themselves. And we're effectively putting out a new collection almost every week for our customers. We have a lot of great licensing partnerships with Sesame Street, Harry Potter, MLB, NHL, etc. And so for us, given our large SKU count and given how important prescription eyeglasses are, it made sense for us to move more production domestically. It's also been great to have more control over the process and bring jobs in more into the U.S. It's also, you know, within driving distance of our fulfillment center. So we can kind of keep our supply chain tight there as well by having our, our lab and our fulfillment center nearby. So as the 15th employee, this is probably a new initiative for you. Oh my is gosh. it? Is it not? Yeah. <laughs> I'm oh, curious so much the process. New. I mean, so yeah. like when I started, our, our dear co-CEO, Nathan, he was still writing the POs himself to our suppliers. We were working with like a temporary warehouse that didn't even have a computer system. They just did everything, you Oof. know, pen and paper, pick tickets, like not a single computer in the whole building and, you know, distributing our product. But it did have like a ton of candles. They had a candle account, so it smelled amazing every time we walked in. But yeah, I mean, it's it's changed so tremendously because before we were doing 100% of production outside the U.S., and now we're, we're transitioning. We have a very established ramp plan where we're moving production more to our, our domestic facility, and we're really excited about it as we invest more in it and we see the output that it's producing and how quickly we can get these glasses to our customers and to our fulfillment center. It's cut down a lot on our transit time as well. So it's right. it's had multiple benefits for us. What's the first st- step in the strategy? Is it identifying a the location you want to manufacture product? Is it finding a partner to manufacture that product? I'm imagining you don't go full on nearshoring. We're going to produce all the product ourselves in-house because of the capital expense, but maybe you do. Maybe I'm a novice. Yeah. The thing is, is, I mean, if you can see the light at the end of the tunnel and you can see that this business has real wings to it and that we do expect volume to increase with the much higher volumes as our company is growing, it's becoming more of a a no brainer for us to take on more of the manufacturing ourselves 
And our, our two CEOs have put a lot of prioritization on making the investments necessary to make that happen. It wasn't really a geographical decision because it was largely based on the know-power and the knowledge from our engineers that are building this. Yeah. And so we've, we've kind of made sure to build it around them and their vision. And it's been very worthwhile for us. Okay. And you say it's not a geographical decision. I'm curious. So you're manufacturing and fulfilling in Southern California. That's correct. Was there yeah. any decision-making process for that? California versus Chicago versus the East Coast? Mm -hmm. Originally, the idea was we liked being in Southern California because a lot of our engineers were out there. And we also did cut down on the transit times from Asia, from Asian suppliers, for raw materials and for other things. And so it does have its advantages. It's also a very expensive area to do business in. And, yeah. and so that's a disadvantage that we've had to weigh. There's kind of a snowball effect that takes place where you build so much of a network there and it doesn't really make sense to pick up everything and pack it up and, and go somewhere else to the middle of the country. But for future expansion, who knows? I mean, that that could be in the, in the cards as the company continues to grow and look at different geographical nodes to be based in. Cool. So this will naturally progress into talking about D2C fulfillment. And so as part of that manufacturing fulfillment process for pair eyewear, you mm -hmm. have some custom elements as part of yeah. your D2C offering. Can you walk us through how that impacts your fulfillment? Yeah. With a normal business where you're just sort of selling one widget in, one widget out, it's very natural to find a 3PL partner who can do just that. But unfortunately, our business is very unique because it involves something that is extremely customized just to you, which is your prescription glasses. Mm -hmm. Your prescription is only just for you. And the edging, we have different lens add-ons that we allow for our customers, like blue light filtering or progressives or even sun lenses if you just want sunglasses. And so it just doesn't make sense to assign a skew to those items because they are precisely so customized, you kind of have three options. And the first option is, well, you assign a, a SKU to every single custom item that you ever make. And all of a sudden you have like 300,000 SKUs or something <laughs> within a year. That doesn't make sense. The second option is to remove the custom element to it and you just treat it as like a generic thing where you're just kind of decrementing of RX frame A or something where you just turn it into a generic skew. But the problem there is then you have no visibility into which pair of glasses actually shipped out to the customer. You're just kind of decrementing off of a dummy skew. So that's also not an ideal situation. So the way you kind of have to make it work is by looking at a hybrid model that treats each custom order as like a cross-docked order that also requires additional picking. So it's really unique to kind of have something that is not completely cross-docking, but also we have all of our top frames that are generic widgets that can be picked from bins. And so you have to kind of find a way to cross-dock the custom item while still keeping in mind what is left to pick from the bins if the customer orders additional accessories, which 
they certainly always do. If I'm wrapping my head around it, it's more like you guys are running a very customized kitting operation with, I, I guess, a crosstalk component in there. And I'm curious, you know, how is that affecting lead times for your customers? I have a feeling that, mm-hmm. you know, these are my glasses. They're made specifically for me. I'm willing to wait from a consumer yeah. expectation standpoint. But I'm curious, you know, how is that affecting your lead time? Are you having the customers that live in the prime era and they're like, I need my customized yeah. glasses within two days and kind of yeah. setting those expectations with them? Yeah, that's a great question. And there are a lot of nuances to the, the logic that we have to implement into our WMS to even make this happen. Because first things first... There's no point in ordering these if you don't have the glasses to put them on. So one has to necessarily come before the other. The other thing is we can't make your glasses until you give us your prescription. And so oftentimes we'll see a delay of days, if not months, before a customer actually provides their prescription to us. And so that can also delay when they get the rest of their order. And so, yeah, it's been tricky to find a way to get orders to their to customers as fast as possible while still keeping in mind that this has to come before this and that, you know, they're going to be coming in at different times. So even if you have stock of this, it's still waiting on this to come right. in. And that might take a couple of days, depending on where it's coming from. So And then rounding it out, you also have a significant B2B experience as well. So coming back to your Swell mm. experience, I'm curious what challenges did you have with B2B fulfillment? Yeah, B2B is an entirely different beast. Right now, Pair, by the way, is D2C only. So it's been a little bit easier to keep like a one-track mind about it. And it's allowed us to kind of invest a lot in the the website experience, the user interface. But when you're dealing with B2B, you are dealing with dozens of different portals, dozens of different sets of compliance requirements. You can get a lot of volume out of it. The margin is thinner, but you get a lot of volume. And so it's kind of a bit of like golden handcuffs, I think, for a startup company that's, that's going into a B2B relationship. So you really have to make sure that the relationship is beneficial for both parties. But at Swell, one of the biggest issues we had is we were working with, I think, over 70 or 80 business retailers. And each one had their own book of compliance requirements. And they have requirements around everything from how the ASN is to how the shipments are routed, how carriers are called, how labels are placed on the boxes, how the boxes are packed. And so you go into like exponential levels of complexity there because your team on the the warehouse floor has to know exactly how each customer's orders need to be packed, routed, and shipped. And that can be a lot of, that can be very challenging if you have warehouse turnover from one customer to another is just so different. They really have to be able to fragment their mind in a hundred different ways yet still find a way to kind of standardize their processes of when they route all their orders. There has to be some way to kind of group them because maybe they'll route all the orders together or they'll send all these ASNs or maybe they'll do these two customers that happen to have very similar compliance requirements. So you're you're kind of walking into a lot of that that requires a totally separate set of workflows. And then, of course, the chargebacks that come with it. Of course. Chargebacks are a way of life for anybody engaging in B2B business. And it was no different for us at Swell. We had our, you know, our, our own 
specialist just to dispute chargebacks because it is wow. it's such a money making operation for a lot of retailers that they have a hard time letting it go and it's very tough to fight these chargebacks once they're implemented so it, that's a whole other topic yeah it's yeah. it's almost like as a brand it's more important to get it right on the front end than have to spend the time and effort fighting a chargeback because mm -hmm. from the retailer's perspective right they're thinking of it right. well this is a chargeback because it's taking my team extra time you didn't adhere to our you know 180 right. page routing guide and and compliance yeah. efforts and we hear it a lot in the d2c world at some point it's a necessity to go b2b and be in retailers mm -hmm. to enable a lot of the brand growth but it's never fun to make that switch and, and especially as you bring more and yeah. you get 70 80, 100 retailers that all have different compliance requests, it's, it's, yeah. it's certainly a headache. Yeah. I mean, some companies, they'll even break up with a customer because their compliance was too arduous. Right. Um, mm -hmm. It's not unheard of. But like you said, I mean, you can get exposure in a lot of stores across the country. You can get a lot of distribution and a lot of volume that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get with a D2C model. But it does require a lot of preparation on the front end to make sure that your fulfillment center is ready to handle A, the volume, B, the different workflow, the routing involved, the packout process involved that's going to be separate. And you need to make sure that that new pricing as well for that new packout process also has to be beneficial for you. Love it. Gosh, Rich, I think we could talk to you all day. I'd love to know career advice. Like, let's say you were talking face to face to someone mm -hmm. that's either entry level or maybe middle of their career in supply chain. What would you tell them? Yeah. So this is especially the case for a startup environment where you have not a lot of structure, but a lot of things that need to be done. But this can also apply to a larger, more established work environment. And that is, I would recommend go after the areas of the supply chain that are the least sexy that are the most necessary. Sometimes the things that appear to be like the least interesting or the most boring are actually the most important and critical for the health of the company. And so I'm specifically talking about things like inventory control, returns, you know, duties and taxes. These kinds of areas are so critical to the success of a company, especially when it's first starting out. And you'll often find when you when you go into a company that they don't have a lot of resources or, or headcount that's addressed towards these areas. A lot of these things kind of go under the radar because they're just focused on growing and, you know, making sure that you're hitting your 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 minimum requirements that you need to just mm -hmm. kind of grow and get orders to customers. But it allows for that extra level of sophistication that you'll need when it is time to scale up. And so I would recommend volunteer to, to tackle those areas because there's a good chance that nobody's really looking at it that in depth. And in those areas, that's where you're going to learn a lot about the business. You'll learn a lot about different process improvements that could be made, cracks that need to be filled, and the the knowledge that you'll get will become such a niche part of the company that you'll become such an asset, I think, within the organization. You can't build a, a winning brand without the right foundation, and if you can conquer mm -hmm. the foundation first, then everything else on top is just uh, building the empire, right? Duties and taxes are sexy. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> 
income terms? Like, it's, don't you get excited? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't get everybody hot, but it, it really is like super important because the the amount that just kind of fly, flies under the radar when you look at a, a customs invoice, it just it kind of just goes straight to payment, and people don't even look at it twice to assess if they're really being charged the right duty rate or if they're being like, what are all these accessorial fees? There's there's so much there that can be unpacked. And if you take the time to unpack them, it, it really um, can make a big difference. 100% agree. All right, Rich, wrapping up here, moving on to our speed round. Just a couple of quick hitters for you and we'll go rapid fire here. So if you didn't work in supply chain, what would you be doing? I'd be doing international development, international poverty relief. Believe it or not, mm-hmm. I worked in the Peace Corps in Mozambique at the very beginning of my career when I graduated college. And so um, I fell in love with that kind of work in the field. I worked a lot with like micro businesses. So I would probably do that again. That's awesome. What's the last thing yeah. you bought online? Last thing I bought online was a TV stand that requires way too much assembly. Uh, I'm still I'm still sweating over it right now. It's a work in progress. You, you know they have services for that that'll they'll come and and put it together for you. They do. But sometimes you just have to conquer it yourself and be like, yes, I was able to. Put yeah. It sometimes I, I have to feel like like an achiever to to get it done. That's right. But what's one thing you do to uh, relax or unwind? I love biking. It's not like I don't have any gear. I'm not that that kind of guy, but like I just love getting on my bike and kind of exploring new neighborhoods in the city and exploring new places no matter like what they look like. I just kind of like getting on there and going super fast and zipping in and out of traffic and I don't <laughs> think I could have gotten through the pandemic without that. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Rich, we certainly appreciate you joining this session of Supply Chain Therapy and best of luck with all the adventures to come. Thanks so much. Appreciate you having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Supply Chain Therapy, a podcast brought to you by Stored. Make your supply chain a competitive advantage. Go to stored.com to learn more.